How contemporary music can be anti-racist? Is contemporary music ever able to convey social criticism? How abstract instrumental sounds can address social injustice, ecocide, racism, gender discrimination, war, forced migration, and humanitarian crisis, and inspire us to act against them? Can contemporary music change the world? Perhaps contemporary music itself cannot, but people who listen to it could. Recently I started looking at and critically assessing contemporary music in terms of the resources it can equip us with, resources with which it can activate and mobilize us to think, act and search further. I call these features of contemporary music that have the power to inspire deeper social and political awareness, social aesthetics. Social aesthetics can instigate change and I would like to consider them the main criteria through which we could perceive and evaluate contemporary music. What is aesthetic beauty, after all, if it doesn't emancipate and empower? This is connected with another pressing question of our times. How contemporary music can move away from the system of its own references? You are listening to Hysterical Racism, a story about Senegalese Island and Yanis Xenakis' composition Alil de Grey, made by Monica Joa. Music like this can move beyond the score to touch people's hearts and minds. How can it step down from podiums and stages of prestigious concert halls, leave its elegant interiors and the comfort of velvet seats, and enter the streets to join the revolution? without being derogatory, patronizing or condescending. 
without diminishing or belittling its listeners. How can music be critical and uncomfortable, yet not necessarily judgmental, deprecating or alienating? I don't know the answer to all of that. I don't think anybody does. But there are composers whose work may bring us closer to finding out. As a musicology student, I was always confronted with these two opposite sides of the study of music. Music with context and music without context. Western classical music tradition against the world or traditional or ethnic music, as it was called back then. They were all separated and had all different names and research methodologies musicology, ethnomusicology, and popular music studies. The disciplinary subdivisions that musicology instigated were repulsive to me, and I never understood them. In my writing, I tried to boycott these disciplinary separations, question their hierarchies and the value systems these fields reinforce. Is classical music neglecting its context only because we take so many elements of it for granted? so that they become invisible and irrelevant to us. Later on, as a music writer, I became increasingly aware of specific contexts in which different types of musics were created, performed and listened to. I cared more and more about cultures and subcultures from which different music practices came and became more sensitive about the underlining societal, political, economic and ethical values and conditions this music's assimilated, reflected and reinforced. To me, music became a mirror of our societies. And by engaging with it, I felt I was getting a bit closer to certain places, cultures and value systems. Even if said music and sounds weren't illustrative or making direct or obvious references or fulfilled certain expectations, Following this thought, I couldn't understand why Western classical or contemporary music couldn't be seen through its social or political engagements, references and conditions. I soon learned that they could, but differently than literary, visual or theater pieces did. And I started not only enjoying them, but now I truly believed in the transformative power of contemporary music to move people's minds and hearts and extend beyond just symbolic and aesthetic spheres. Yanis Xenakis, Alil de Gouray for an amplified harpsichord and a mixed ensemble of 12 players is such a piece of contemporary music for me. The concerto lasts 14 minutes and was written for the Polish harpsichordist Elżbieta Hojnacka and Dutch Xenakis ensemble de Middelburg. It premiered in Amsterdam on July 4, 1986 with Hoop Kirstens as a conductor. Alil de Gouray immediately struck me as remarkably different from Xenaki's earlier works. Music critics describe it as light, fragile, transparent and more balanced in terms of timbre, almost classical, even baroque, with its rhythmic ostinato, 
dominating throughout the piece, and as less technically challenging in comparison to his earlier compositions. I felt that this piece was very much attuned to Xenaki's philosophy that, quotation, one must always cultivate a new approach. One must always be an immigrant in everything, end of quote. Despite its abstract, purely instrumental character, through its title and written dedication, the piece delivers a powerful political and social criticism. The titular Senegalese island of the Goray is an important place for slave history and memory. In his commentary included in the piece, Xenakis described it as a flourishing slave market in the 19th century. In his commentary, Xenakis wrote, this piece is an homage to the black people who forcibly taken from their lands into appalling slavery have managed to win for themselves leading positions in some of the civilized, in quotation marks, countries to which they had been deported. My discovery and engagement with Xenakis Alil de Grey became for me a personal story, and it started with a conversation. I saw my friend Goshka is fording earlier last year, and I noticed a spark in her eye when I told her about my plans to go to Senegal in a couple of weeks. What an amazing coincidence, she said. It so happened that she was working on Xenakis Alil de Grey to perform it on the occasion of his centenary with the London-based riot ensemble, of which she is a core member. You can hear the wonderful performance throughout this piece, with Goshka as a soloist on the harpsichord. The eponymous island Goray is a real island located just two kilometers from the main harbor in Dakar, Senegal. Since 1978, Goray Island is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Many people consider it an important memorial site and a symbol of the Atlantic slave trade taking place on the African coast for nearly 300 years. Until 1960, Senegal and the Goray Island remained a French colony. Previously, the island, like the whole of Senegal, was the object of colonial rivalry between the three European colonial powers, Portugal, the Netherlands, and Great Britain. Xenakis wrote Alil de Grey for an amplified solo harpsichord and ensemble in 1986. The piece is abstract and purely instrumental, but the title and the explicit dedication to African people deliver a powerful and rare statement in the 20th century Western composed music against racism, slavery, and colonialism. I'm not sure whether Xenakis was writing the piece already having this idea and dedication in mind. He only said that he named the composition after finishing it. In an interview with Balint Andra Schwarga in 1996, he said, quotation, in Alil de Grey, I didn't want to write programmatic music in any sense. I wanted the music to be self-sufficient, without the need to know what it is about. Nevertheless, his written introduction delivers a strong political anti-colonial and anti-racist statement. And it reminds me of another politically and socially charged piece, 
Trenody to the Victims of Hiroshima, composed by Krzysztof Penderecki in 1960. The piece was initially called 8 minutes 37 seconds. However, after following the advice of a radio director, Roman Jasinski, it was renamed in 1961 to Trenody to the Victims of Hiroshima, whereby it achieved a prominent anti-war status. Indeed, the titles of the compositions do have a discursive and narrative power that can affect how we interpret and listen to them, even if composers shy away from such readings of their works. In the case of Alil de Grey, the political and anti-racist message has to get through a purely instrumental composition. Moreover, belonging to the abstract modernist tradition of contemporary art music, which prides itself on its lack of references to the real world or any kind of illustration. Perhaps this is why Xenaki's dedication and political overtones appear stronger in the piece, even if the music of Alil de Goray doesn't directly correspond with its title. As some of the listeners would want it, Gore Island is a real place that evokes real feelings and real pain. It evokes the type of feelings we don't exactly want to feel when we are about to embark on a stroll along a sunny and beautiful beach on the picturesque island of the coast of Dakar. Shame, guilt, powerlessness for being white, for being European, for being a colonizer. Located at the westernmost point of the African continent, Senegalese Gore Island is considered an important slave trade center that took place here for over three centuries. Some people name it a place of the African Holocaust. I started my visit to Gore already in the hall, where I was waiting for a ship to take me there. People began to gather in the huge port hangar, and I haven't been among so many for quite a while. This is when I started listening. I became in mirrors in the sonosphere, and already at the boat, I let the sound guide me. When I arrived at Gore Island, I wanted to learn about the horrific slave trade that took place here, and understand it through its sounds, architecture, infrastructure, nature, colors and smells, through its baobabs and blooming hibiscus flowers, through its light blue and pink window shutters attached to colorful colonial buildings, dry air and sandy roads. I wanted to learn about this volcanic island made of basalt with no natural water source, about the stories of slaves that were brutally kept here so that they could acclimatize to the inhuman conditions on the slave ships during month-long journeys that they would have to endure before arriving in the sugar and coffee plantations in the New World. These journeys were deadly and so many black slaves died 
on the ships from exhaustion, disease and malnutrition. This is why the slave owners came up with a selection process and took on the ship to sell only those who survived up to 90 days being locked up in the dark and narrow cells of the slave houses of the Gore Island. I wanted to understand what happened here, both cognitively and emotionally. I wanted to listen to this place because it was so sonically intricate, nuanced and multi-layered. I wanted to absorb these sounds as much as I wanted to attend to the local people and the stories about their lives, memories and experiences. This colorful, serene and calm island, unlike busy Dakar, in an overwhelming and cognitively dissonant way, became symbolically an immense depository of the darkest pages of human history, of the crimes and greed of the Western world against African populations. Regardless of the actual scale of the slave trade that took place on Gore Island, which to this day remains not fully scientifically explained or confirmed, the island is a powerful vessel of the slave trade history, memory and emotions. And it's perhaps more interesting to see how the past of this place is being cultivated, rather than to know the specific scale of it in numbers, dates or artifacts. For someone born and raised 20 kilometers from Auschwitz Nazi camp like me, this place felt weirdly familiar. Despite being situated on another continent, more than 6,000 kilometers away, the mechanism of systemic state-sponsored oppression, exploitation and dehumanization seemed shockingly similar, despite their different geographical and historical context. There was a comparable systemic effort put into developing infrastructures built to exploit and torture people who were considered inferior and subhuman by their oppressors. Earlier, I was quite certain that the Greco-French avant-garde composer Yanis Xenakis, who dedicated his harpsichord concerto to the victims of the Atlantic slave trade, did visit Gore Island during his travel to Senegal. After talking to his daughter, Maki Xanakis, I'm less certain about that and if he ever traveled to Senegal. The sources cannot confirm that, but I still imagined he did. And so while wandering around the buildings, streets and squares, and letting the sun burn my skin, I kept these three overlapping Gore Islands in my mind. The Gore Island under the Portuguese, Dutch, British and French colonial rule, the Gore Island as it might have been possibly experienced by Xenakis in the mid-80s, shortly after it became recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and my own Gore, now a popular site of heritage tourism for African Americans, and a home to local Senegalese artists and craftsmen who have their beautiful ateliers here. It's remarkable how the past, present and future of the three continents intertwine on this tiny island, or to borrow the words of my tour guide, who described the Gore Island as small by size, but big by history, when he showed me one of the shortest streets on the island, where I could see the ocean from both ends. But Gore is a very small island by size, but big island by history. You are very many meters long and 200 meters wide. Okay. Very similar island. 
But why the choice go for the safe trade? But the Senegalese coast is very close to the United States to Brazil. Yeah. That's why they came here for bring them to the plantation. <laughs> Brazil, Caribbean, West Indies, Haiti, Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. You have only a street in the island, you have both sides. And this is the white. Two sides you see the ocean. Both sides. Okay. okay. 300 meters wide yeah. and 900 meters long. Okay. Yeah. Very similar. There is one house in the slave quarter on the Gore Island that resembles a ship. It's named Villa Victoria Albis, after a powerful French Senegalese woman who built it and lived there. This one was one of the most shocking buildings I saw on the Gore Island from the colonial era. You can see that one of the corners of the first floor of this otherwise very impressive residence was designed and built with one purpose in mind, to keep here the captured slaves so that they can get used to the harsh conditions they would experience later on the slave ships on their way across the Atlantic Ocean. That is, only if they survive this three months acclimatization trial period before their departure. Just as the slave ships, the cells in this part of the buildings where they kept slaves had very narrow vertical loopholes that resembles arrow slits, like those we know from the fortification buildings. Otherwise, this part of the villa had no windows or doors through which the fresh air could get in. The shape of the cells also resembled the quarters in a ship. They were dark and narrow, and the slaves were cramped in large numbers in there and force-fed with coconut oil if they were too slim. Only healthy and strong-looking slaves could be sold. Only slaves that survived the tedious trip over the Atlantic Ocean could make a profit. But this house, Gore, during the slave trade, Gore have 29 slavery houses. 29? 29, yes. Now they just keep only one, and they're symbolizing the order. This tumor cell, they make inside 15 people. 15. The win- yes, 15. The window, same window to the boat. You cannot escape, just for aeration. They bring them outside one time for eat and go bathroom. I show you it right now. When they don't do bathroom, I they do inside. Three cells for men. This before was iron, but now they made wood. But the iron they resting about the wind from the ocean. They can control here and they don't open. Here for young boy, 15 old or 20. When you have less than 15, you don't, they never sell you. You're gonna die. But the condition is not good. Come. It's same in, in the boat, it's same. It's very dark, no light, just the light from the sun. Here is same condition in the boat. It's same for young girls. The value for young girls, you have to get full breast. When you have full breast, you are a virgin girl. For men, me, 60 kilograms minimum. When you have less than 60, they feed you. Local beans and oil palm. It's not good food, just for a strong. For a young boy, a strong tooth. They open your mouth, they see everything. Slavery, no clothes. Similar things here. Here is very bad condition. That's why many slaves, they die here. But they have yellow fever. The yellow fever was contagious sickness. When you have this sickness, they throw them to the ocean. They never help them. Before around the island, many sharks can't eat. Enough to tamper 
minimum for men 60 kilograms. When you have less than 60, they come here for feed them by force. They have to eat by force. They pack here two by two, two, four, six, eight, ten people here for 15 days. Every day they bring them outside one time, eat something, go bathroom, and they beat them also. Here for men, no windows, but for ladies, got windows. They beat them and they throw them the water from the ocean, they got salt. Right and left, we have two corridors, waiting room. When they go to the boat, they go two by two. Young boys and young girls. They go without the shame, no shame. But the men go first one, two corridors for men, they tie them. But very strong. When they don't tie them, it's not sure for the white men. They tie them and they go to the boat, two by two, and one iron bulls. 10 kilograms they tie into your feet. When you want to when you want to escape with this bull, you never go far away. You're gonna sink. Yeah. And this is the door of not to return. When you pass at this door, bye bye Africa. Sometimes the slave master wife they have sexual relations with the ladies by force. And they have mulatto's baby. They call them senior. Senior they're from the Portuguese language. They mean senora, ladies. When you have baby with this white man, they never sell you. You stay here all your life for domestically. You wash for white men, you clean the house, and you make cooking for white men. It's better. Sexual, sexual slave trade. If you accept leave sexual white men, sexual, you are free. But you are a sexy lady. No good. During my trip, I tried to understand the island's history and reconnect with it through sound. In this particular place, I kept asking myself, What's the sound of slavery? What's the sound of colonial oppression? What's the sound of imprisonment? Can the subaltern scream here? And if so, how loud? To paraphrase the title of the influential essay from 2008 by an Indian scholar and intellectual, Gayatri Chakravotri Spivak. On Gore Island, I realized that one of the most powerful sounds I heard was the sound of the chains displayed in the House of Slaves, the central site of heritage tourism for the black diaspora. These cold, heavy and rough metal balls and chains for the legs, together with slave bracelets, are now treasured as powerful artifacts and mighty props and profoundly symbolic proofs of slave trade crimes that were committed here over the centuries. They are literal carriers of physical pain and bodily restraint applied to capture slaves from the entire continent. You shame, they tie your hair. See, look like this. The iron bulls. They tie these iron bulls, your feet, two by two, one bull. When you want to escape with this bull, you're going to sink and your brother going to sink also. They never go and they tie them with this However, during my trip to the Gore Island, I activated my listening in a bizarre way so that every, even the most ordinary sound became very charged with meaning and led to complex and difficult emotions for me. The 
the protracted sound of the ship horn as we left the port and approached our final destination, the sound of the crowd cramped in the porthole, impatiently waiting to board the ship, bouncing off the walls, amplified and resonating, the sound of plastic sleeves covering the collection of pictures taken earlier of a group of tourists traveling the same route, being vigorously touched by local photographers, who now insistingly wave them in front of the passengers on the ship, offering their services to them. Finally, the calming and repetitive sound of the waves, the strong wind coming from the ocean, the sound of chirping birds and the sound of water being poured to wash hands in a symbolic gesture of purification before entering the house of slaves. You wash your hands? I respect the, you know, it's not, it's stopped. You wash your hands. All these sounds present on the island and the silence I experienced in the house of slaves were loaded with powerful meanings and complicated emotions. And only through visiting this place and experiencing it personally, I could finally fully understand the message Xanakis tried to convey in his piece. My memory and imagination were activated by these sounds. I started my travel in Senegal by listening, and I let the sound guide me. I felt that the complex realities and temporalities I experienced here were split into bizarre puzzles. And only through listening I could start putting these dispersed elements together. Monica Joua. I accept the apologies, but I never forget the history.